Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone. Welcome to the episode two of the Talking DLD podcast. My name's Sean and I'm one of the co-founders of the DLD project. We've had such a wonderful response to our first episode, so thank you so much for your support. In this episode, I'm speaking with Professor Sheena Riley from Griffith University, who's recently been awarded a member of the Order of Australia. Professor Riley is one of the foremost leaders in DLD in Australia, having worked in the space for more than 30 years. I'll start by welcoming you to the Talking DLD podcast. I won't introduce you, Professor Riley, but what I might do is get you to introduce yourself, maybe perhaps telling us a bit about your connection with DLD. Thanks, Sean. Um, so I'm Sheena Riley, and I trained as a speech pathologist many, many years ago. And my connection to um, DLD has really been one throughout my career. I've always worked with children. Paediatrics has always been my passion and children's speech and language development. And I started out working with children with neurodevelopmental disabilities, children with cerebral palsy and other developmental challenges. And um, that got me thinking really about the things that we didn't know about language development and variations that we see in language development. And later in my career, it led me to really start to want to explain more about how language emerges, what goes wrong, how sure we can be about when something's going wrong and when we should therefore intervene. So in a nutshell, that's sort of my journey um, and connections around developmental language disorder. Fabulous. I must congratulate you again on your Order of Australia uh, or becoming a member of the Order of Australia. That's a fantastic achievement for all of your work and illustrious career in uh, speech language and research. So congratulations. Oh, thank you, Sean. That's really nice of you. Um, It was a great surprise, but uh, a wonderful award to receive. And although those awards are given to individuals, I would not have been able to uh, do what I've done and the sort of research teams that I've been involved with without um, an amazing bunch of colleagues from a number of different professions, including um, speech pathology. So I, I really see it as very much being a team effort. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've had some fantastic uh, collaborators and, and team members over the years, I'm sure. Um, hopefully, if they're all listening in, uh, they will um, know that they've been a part of something absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, I think that moving forward, I'd be really interested to hear based on your experience, you've had such a long history with DLD. And I, I, I say that with much kindness and much respect because I feel that when I was thinking about you know, in, invitations and people to um, come in and speak about the podcast, you know, we really wanted to talk about, uh, we've got lots of podcasts and information around DLD around the world, but DLD in Australia, and your name is a name that definitely resonates with a lot of people in the industry, in the profession, because of your um, experience and your your research background. Are you able to talk about some of your observations about the history of developmental language disorder or as it's, um, you know, previous 
uh, names have suggested, you know, specific language impairment or language disorder. Are you able to talk about those observations specifically within the context of Australia? Yeah, of course. I guess there's a couple of things I'd focus on. I guess, first of all, when I trained a long time ago, and we'll not keep referring to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll let that one slide, yeah. You know, things seemed uh, a lot more clear-cut and simple, really. Mm-hmm. Children turned up to a clinic and, uh, you know, there was a question about whether they were having some problems learning language. And back in those days, uh, specific language impairment, SLI, was uh, really the diagnosis that um, you were working towards with some children and there were specific criteria that you needed to meet or criteria that you needed to exclude in order to get to that diagnosis. And at that time, I guess the the approach that was being taken also to looking at language problems in children was uh, a much more disciplinary perspective. So speech pathologists with potentially psychologists being involved to comment on children's nonverbal ability. And one of the things that I think has changed um, over the years is the sorts of teams we've brought together um, to try and answer some of the questions that we had around this phenomenon of um, language development and when children are challenged with their language learning. And one of the things I think I've been most proud of is being able to bring together um, a large multidisciplinary team to actually look at the problems and to view the problems from a number of different perspectives. And that really started to change the way I thought about the problem, but also thought about who might actually have this problem out in the community who don't actually get um, to our clinics. And that that came from work that I was doing with people who are uh, much more experts in population health than I am, so epidemiologists, and the sorts of information that they brought to looking at whole populations of children in our community. And over the years, through quite a lot of research, that taught us um, that not all children with language problems ever made it into our clinics, that there were quite a lot of children um, out there who were having problems learning language who didn't make it into a speech pathology clinic. And that's been, I think, um, a real, that was a real revelation. And I think it's changed, hopefully, the way we look at the population of children who've got problems and the sorts of approaches that we need to take towards this problem, which go well beyond clinic. The second thing was really how we conceptualised the problems that children might have learning language, which over a long period got us to Um, the use of the term developmental language disorder, DLD, and a move away from specific language impairment. And one of the big learnings for me through our longitudinal study, the early language in Victoria study, was that we just couldn't quite see where that population of children were to start with. And as the study evolved over time, we realised more and more that they were really a very discreet, tiny group of children on the spectrum, if you like. And there were a whole bunch of other children who had challenges learning language that just didn't quite meet 
those criteria um, to have specific language impairment. And to me, that meant that a lot of those children were not actually getting the help they required because the criteria to get the help, particularly in our schools, for example, were really quite stringent. And the sorts of bars that you had to, the criteria that you had to meet to get that intervention meant that only a small number of children would ever receive it. So that really got me thinking about the whole public health approach. Children generally, but in particularly in relation to their speech and language, and how that needed to change. And it all also stimulated for me a need to move away from thinking um, about this being a diagnosis based on exclusion criteria, because we were actually doing a significant disservice to many children um, who had this problem. You know, vehemently agreeing in my head. Uh, I, I'm particularly, I often refer to the ELVES study when speaking to colleagues and families and talking about, you know, the movement, uh, particularly away from even terms like the concept of a language delay uh, and the very small number of children you found in that study who actually spontaneously recovered, I guess, uh, you know, from having those language difficulties. In terms of uh, those observations. Are you feeling that uh, we're in a good position moving forward with the term developmental language disorder, both clinically and in research? Look, I think things are moving forward. I think mm. there's a bit of a lag in um, potentially how uh, quickly policy and practice is catching up. And I, I don't mean mm. at the sort of clinician level. I, mm. I'm not as in touch as I used to be with policy context, but I know that there's been concerns around the shift away and how quickly um, different settings have, have caught up with some of those changes. Um, but, you know, we really can't um, stand still on this because we're doing a disservice to the children who have these challenges and to their families who are desperate to get support for them. So, you know, we have a real responsibility to go out and advocate if we think the criteria that we've been using in the past um, have moved on as research has moved us on. Absolutely. And there's, a, I think, um, a number of your papers that, that really do talk to that around the issues around terminology or, or previous terminology. And it's not so much about being um, focused on the past, but acknowledging the journey that we've gone through in order to, as you've said, advocate and support for the children and families and you know eventually the adults with DLD who are mm. often the the missed population I feel out there particularly in Australia that aren't really getting the support that they deserve or need so hopefully we'll see progress over the coming years to improving service delivery for them. Mm. One of my other questions I'd love to talk through with you was now that we have this published consensus on criteria and terminology as well as um, the support of peak bodies such as Speech Pathology Australia, what do you feel clinicians need to know about DLD? How can they adapt to the change in, in terminology within their day-to-day -day practices? So Sean, one of the things I'd like to do is just reassure um, uh, clinicians who are at the coalface that you know, we haven't got this all solved yet, that there's still quite a lot of work to do. 
and in some ways it's probably you know a mission that'll go on um, long after I've retired um, people will be continuing to try and address some of these challenges I think recognizing that the issues that we're dealing with here are not complex it's not like drawing a line and saying if you're this side of the line you get this and if you're that side of the line you get that now I know that that's sometimes how some services work um, but you know what we're doing dealing with here are um, you know really complex sets of of behavior in children that um, are changing and developing and they're not going to stay the same so um, I think the the criteria and the terminology that we were using previously in relation to SLI gave us a little bit of comfort because it did draw some very firm boundaries and probably what we've moved towards um, is a slightly, um, we've certainly moved towards a less rigid way of thinking about um, developmental language disorder, but I think it is a much more inclusive uh, way of thinking about um, the problems. And instead of saying, if you've got this, you can't have um, this, we're now saying, well, we're recognising that there's, there's a much broader phenotype, if you like, for um, developmental language disorder. I think one of the challenges that we're all facing is that a lot of the research that has been done in the past that we use um, to inform practice has been done on groups that have been defined using the criteria that are, are now um, no longer in, in practice. So there's a, there's a sort of transition period, I think, for all of us that's a bit tricky. Um, so, you know, if I'm into trying to interpret um, research data and um, its data that's been done on the phenotype that was defined as specific language impairment, it's really quite hard to know um, how specifically one could relate that to a data set that um, isn't using that sort of criteria to define groups. This becomes problematic in genetic studies, imaging studies, you know, as well as intervention studies. You know, one of the things that Dorothy Bishop um, advocates is sort of openness around people's data and it would be fantastic to be able to go back um, and interrogate data sets that have been used in various studies to actually look at whether some of these um, tests hold up now in retrospect. I'm not sure if we'd be able to do that with some of the, <laughs> some of the data sets, but I think there are some challenges moving forward. Yeah, I agree with what you say. I think clinicians are faced with, you know, taking on board information, often information that's driven from research with a slightly different population. And although DLD is encompassing of those children who um, formerly would have been referred to as SLI, that doesn't necessarily always explain how to best support them. And so we have to draw some you know, uh, assumptions. And I also really like the point that you raised about uh, not having these clear boundaries. And I can, I can give a, a very clear example of somebody I'm working with at the moment who, if you looked at, um, on a standard score only, this, this young person really fell on a borderline of uh, whether or not they fitted into a box of DLD or not, but through uh, language sampling and functional assessment, looking at how they performed within a school setting, it became very clear that DLD was the best fit 
at the time uh, for this young person to explain the difficulties they were facing. So looking at uh, DLD through more than one lens, I think is really important for the clinicians. And I'm hoping that uh, as uh, people join the Talking DLD podcast, you know, we'll have a range of speech pathologists and families and other professionals that might join in that hopefully they can take away some understanding that it's not, we're not looking at a specific box, that we are looking at a range of observable behaviours and that what we're trying to do is find the best identity potentially for that condition so that those people can find the right support. And I think uh, probably harking back to a, a part of our previous conversation is without having that clear terminology, then these families really struggle to find the right support, don't they? Um, look, I think they do. And, you know, there's this real balance between needing to um, clearly define uh, a problem um, in order to get the right support and and it, and empower families to try and find that support. The example that um, you just gave is is a perfect one that you know sometimes people just don't quite fit neatly into. You know we're all humans. We have yeah. um, enormous <laughs> variation, um, yeah. but we do try and pigeonhole people into. Um, boxes, for want of a better word, that yeah. gives someone a diagnostic label, which then means they get X. And, you know, so many aspects of healthcare are really moving away from um, if you've got this, you get that, and personalising the care that individuals get. And, you know, that's revolutionising, for example, cancer mm -hmm. treatment. Um, mm -hmm. where it's not always a standard treatment if you've got X. It's something that's very personalised to um, the individual and their phenotype and um, the genomics of whatever their cancer is. And I think that's an interesting challenge for us as we move this field on around how we might be able to think about some of those approaches for um, children and their families. And... In the um, series of articles that was written for the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders a few years ago, where we really um, had a great debate about the use of the term specific language impairment, there's a great article in there um, written about uh, the use of labels. And that article is really informative in thinking about this from the perspective of families and um, the important role that having a label or an identification for a problem, um, what that means um, for, for families, whereas, you know, for, as professionals, we might have different views about that, um, yes. but it can be um, quite different, I think, for, from a family's perspective. So I'd really direct people um, to have a look at that because... It was quite a powerful um, piece of writing. And I, I think it's really important to consider that point that you've raised. And as a clinician, I, I feel I've always grappled with labels, um, whether it was DLD or other, um, and how that affects a person. And what I'm learning and uh, what I'm hearing from families is that, in fact, the label is empowering that the label gives them something to say, yes, this explains, or yes, this enables me to find information and support to better myself or better my child's future. 
um, which I wouldn't have been able to do beforehand. And I think that as a, I've been hearing these stories and anecdotes over years, it's made me realise that I, I, as a speech pathologist, shouldn't be scared um, of the labels, um, but it's my role to help address that, unpack that, and make that as meaningful and, as you said, individualised for the person because Lord knows there's not a standardised treatment for DLD out there. Um, so we're not even in a position to offer, you know, a one-size-fits-all. So we always need to individualise it to the, um, to the person that's, that we're working with. And we've, I guess we sort of touched on that uh, next issue, uh, the next topic was around talking about families and uh, what an important role they play in supporting advocating, as you've said. Is there anything you wish families of people with DLD knew, something that um, for those families who might be listening that would be really important to understand or share? Um, just continuing the theme on labels for a minute and um, then I'll move on to your question. I think the other really important um, thing for families and support groups is a label enables you to connect into other families and you know, for teenagers to connect into their peers, for adults co to connect into peers. And they can be very, very powerful um, networks for supporting each other. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't, you know, really emphasise the importance of it from that perspective as well. And one of the things that I have heard over the years from families with um, children uh, with DLD is the lack of of a really um, strong support network. You know, if you belong, if your child has um, uh, dyspraxia or they're stuttering, there are very, you know, quite well-established strong support networks. Even if your child has a rare disease, there is a support network um, that might operate nationally, internationally to support you. And I think that's something that a number of families have said to me over the years that they really don't feel they've got with um, DLD. So I just throw that one in as a sort of follow up to what you um, just raised, um, Sean. And we're very fortunate that the podcast that we've recorded, the first podcast in this series has actually been with uh, Belinda Peters, who's a parent of a child with DLD, but also um, started or founded the uh, DLD Australia Facebook group. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'll also, um, you know, encourage any of our listeners, particularly families who are looking for that support. There is a wonderful group um, run by Belinda um, that's quite active, that parents are very open and willing about sharing uh, information or asking questions and providing that support. And uh, Belinda does allow some professionals to join that group um, where appropriate, and it creates a really lovely sense of community. Um, mm. that hopefully makes people feel like they can connect with others who understand them or their child's needs um, and to be able to sh have that shared experience. That's fantastic. So just coming back to your question, you asked me, you know, yes. what to... Um, I wish that the families of people with DLD knew. Um, I, I guess in the early years... Um, it's, it's hard to be absolute about that because there is so much um, variation and fluidity in how the children are developing. Although there is a group of children that I think in the early years we can be more certain about. 
I think one of the things is being really clear about the sorts of challenges that exist around the child's future learning and trying to scaffold um, that learning for them so that their education uh, trajectory um, is smoother and really uh, about educating all the people who are going to be involved in supporting that child's learning. I think the other thing I'd say is that, you know, DLD is just not a static diagnosis. You know, in the early years, it's something um, that we really very much classify in language terms. But as the child gets older, transitions into the teen years um, and early adulthood, um, you know, we don't look at it purely in language terms anymore. It's about the sort of impact that DLD is having on a number of aspects of that person's life. And for some individuals, that may be um, minor, and for others, um, it will be more, it will be broader. So I think it's quite hard in the early years to give a family a real sense of what that trajectory is going to be like for their child, and also telling them that that might change over time but highlighting that it might present um, some challenges around how they access aspects of the curriculum, for example. You certainly bring up two thoughts for me in saying that, one of which is that the needs of a five-year-old with DLD, a 15-year-old with DLD and a 25-year-old with DLD will be very different. Um, mm -hmm. And often as a clinician, we're, you know, asked to crystal gaze a little bit to, to look into the future and it's incredibly difficult um, to know exactly what the future holds, but um, it's pleasing to see some research coming out to suggest that that with the right support, with individualised support, there's a very bright future for people with DLD. Um, mm. But some of the challenges are around accessing that support. Well, and also, you know, we tend to focus on the negatives. It's not yes. all negative. Um, no, absolutely. People. Um, there are many positives and the resilience of some of these children is, and families is amazing. And I guess the one thing I, I didn't mention was um, just really emphasising the importance of those um, of early socialisation and the peer yes. um, relationships. And depending on the type of uh, DLD, the characteristics of DLD that any individual child has, um, some aspects of that might be more important than others. Um, so I think really supporting families through that is quite important. Absolutely. Um, and making sure that they have those opportunities that their you know, peers would have similar ages, that whilst DLD is a part of who that person is, it isn't the whole of who the person is. And knowing mm. that there's opportunities that extend beyond you know, having language uh, difficulties with language um, and that all of those opportunities can actually provide actually really rich language experiences like I'm just thinking, you know, I've got a young person who enjoys soccer and is very passionate about it. Uh, but if you were to look at their language skills, you'd say, well, they're, you know, struggle with communicating, but on the soccer field uh, are able to participate and, and follow the instructions well. So there's, you know, unique opportunities depending on the context for the young person as well. One of the other points I was just uh, going to raise on what you've previously said about the uh, fluidity, I guess, in the early years, and I know that that's come through with some of your longitudinal research, is uh, 
particularly I'm thinking of clinicians, but also for the families who might often get, for example, a provisional diagnosis or uh, a, a, di you know, a, a assessment, and then it's suggested that they have some intervention before confirming diagnosis, be able to elaborate a little bit on that fluidity and why it's important to take that time to consider sometimes, particularly before the age of five? Um, yeah. Um... I, it's really important because what we see um, are children sort of crossing in and out of different trajectories um, in those early years. And while some children um, stay on the same trajectory and they remain low in their language development, and for those children, it's more clear that they, they might have a persistent um, problem and I think most clinicians would recognise those children. There's another group of children that um, really seem to wobble about a bit and we're not quite sure, uh, you know, where they're going to land. And it's for those children that I think you want to be a little more cautious about really attaching um, a label. And it might be that some of those children with a little bit of extra support and help actually can accelerate um, their development quite quickly. Some of them may do it completely on their own because we do see these different um, developmental patterns in the um, preschool years. And then I think there's also the issue of not falling for the trap of if your language is fine in the preschool years, it's going to remain fine. Because there's a small group of children who seem to be doing extremely well in those preschool years. Uh, but their language challenges start to show up when they're at school a little bit later. So I think one of the key learnings, um, I probably should have thought about this earlier uh, when we were um, discussing some of the changes, but one of the key learnings is that we need to look at language across those early years, but also into the school years. Uh, because there's something about the sort of cognitive challenges and the complexity once you get it get to school that seem to start to um, cause some children some problems. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think uh, uh, no, knowing my area of um, studies for my PhD, looking specifically mm -hmm. at school-aged children, I think that there's a lot that we can do around supporting children and in schools. The challenge, I guess, that we face is the differentiation between uh, schooling systems around the country and the postcode lottery that some children tend to fall into, which brings me sort of or segues beautifully into my next question around services, which is your research is focused on um, access to services and many families of people with DLD are, are frequently seeking access to services. What are your thoughts on people with DLD accessing services and or funding in Australia at this point in time? Um, well, unfortunately, I think postcode lottery is alive and well. And, you know, I wish I had an easy answer um, to how we fix that. I mean, some of it's historical in that, you know, where services grow up and how they're, de how they're delivered. But, you know, when we, we try and map on where the services actually are, which, of course, in a concrete way doesn't mean that that's where they're being delivered. Um, yes. It just might be 
uh, where they run out of. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, because you're in suburb X, you only get this. But when we do things like we map disadvantage and we map children's language performance on a measure like the Australian Early Development Index, um, and we then map that by where private and public services are available, um, we see that there's a mismatch um, between those services. In a country like Australia, we've always known that there are problems in remote and rural areas, and they need that needs different types of, of solutions to meet the needs of those children, and particularly to meet the needs of our Indigenous um, children as well. I, I'm really intrigued to know um, whether our move to telehealth because of the pandemic has um, really had an impact on uh, the delivery of services into a broader range of areas. I, you know, I know lots of people had to move their services um, online and um, I know some, um, some, yeah, I know there's some research happening and but I don't know any of the outcomes about that yet. I know for, um, from some of the uh, reports I've seen that it's not been wildly successful for some children with autism, for example. But in other areas, say stuttering, um, people have been delivering interventions by equivalent of telehealth for a long time. I'm just not sure yet about how well received that's been um, for DLD. But if there are some success stories there, then that would be just fantastic because it would be a really neat way of um, being able to level out access to services. But I think there's probably a bigger issue around access um, to services that's really around um, equity and uh, if we really have um, equitable access uh, to our services. So, you know, can our disadvantaged can our families who are living with disadvantage access services as well as more advantaged families? Um, I think there are some real questions to be asked about that and also to be uh, addressed around whether we target our services, um, whether we should be thinking about targeting some of our services to areas with greater disadvantage where we know there will be more children um, at risk of being vulnerable on their language development. There may be a shortage of services in those areas. Um, you may need to deliver the services in a different way to reach the families in those areas. And um, some families living with uh, in disadvantaged circumstances have multiple challenges and complexities in their lives, which may mean you know, accessing language services, although it might be our priority, it may not be um, their absolute priority um, right now. So it's it's around some real problem solving, I think, for some of those issues. As you said earlier, the issues are probably a bit bigger than we can uh, <laughs> all work out in one podcast, but I'm sure that I hopefully so. over the I years. <laughs> oh, look, I'm eternally optimistic. Um, as we're wrapping up the podcast, in your opinion, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in Australia and around the world, um, either in research or clinical work, or as we've been talking about service delivery? Um, uh, well, I think we have ongoing um, research questions that we need to ask and answer. 
and some of these around are around the etiology of TLD and uh, why it occurs and really um, starting to unravel some of the phenotypic variations we see in DLD as well. I think we need some larger scale efforts than we've got. So rather than trying to do things um, locally, uh, you know, what about larger international efforts to pull information, uh, conduct interventions across different settings, across different countries. And there are some really um, exciting um, initiatives, uh, particularly in Europe that are happening, um, despite sort of different languages um, across the area that people like James Law and Christina McKean are leading. I think there's some more work to be done just around the whole concept of DLD and sharpening up some of the work um, that's evolved through the whole consensus statement and then centering that very much in our research um, going forward. And hopefully, you know, that will lead to um, some more high quality intervention studies. Absolutely. So only a short list. <laughs> no, I was going to say, that's not a long list at all. I'm sure we can knock all of that, all of that <laughs> over. I think, um, you know, it's wonderful to look to the future, though, and think, well, you know, what is possible, particularly when we're seeing a groundswell of uh, uptake of the term DLD. Um, I'm, I'm seeing certainly in Australia that there's been a real, a really positive uptake of the term, but then it's also raised a lot of questions. Um, but I don't mm. think they're unanswerable questions. Uh, there's a lot of questions around particularly the uh, early years and the adult, adult space, uh, but I feel like we've got some lovely literature around, you know, those school age children and what we're able to do to support them. Uh, but of course, you know, there's always more to do. And I think that as we continue to support these young people and advocate for them at a state, uh, national and international level, hopefully they'll start to get the recognition that they deserve. Um, one, one of the questions that we ask everybody um, who comes on to the Talking DLD podcast is that at the DLD project, we're really focused on self-care, uh, particularly given our current climate um, and finding that time to breathe in a very busy day. As a, an outstanding researcher and a thought leader in the DLD space, what do you do to look after yourself? Ooh, not enough yet. No, uh, and I'm serious. I, I think I personally do not do enough, um, but um, it's a work in progress for me constantly because it feels like there is so much to do that it's very tempting to um, just do something else rather than um, go off and do something that um, means I will be healthier mentally or physically. Um, but I'm on a mission for um, increasing my physical exercise and activity. And the other thing that I try and do is have short periods of, uh, I would call them my meditation, where I just do very short periods of completely blanking, um, my brain switching everything off and trying to just still everything for a, a few moments. Um, and sometimes I'm better at doing that than others. Um, so my mission is, you know, more physical exercise and more time to just try and um, still things for short periods. Very important. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we finish? Anything that um, we haven't covered or that you might like to finish with? There was one question that you didn't um, ask me, and that was about a person. Um, oh, yes. That I've um, worked with. Um, yes. And I wouldn't mind sharing that with you because it did have a really, really major impact on on me um, quite a few years ago. And it was a young man who came in, um, was referred in for an assessment unrelated to um, his language. I think he was referred because, I'm trying to remember, was I think um, he had a mild stutter. And I remember um, sitting down and um, having a chat to this young bloke uh, or trying to have a chat and engage him. And he came with, you know, notes as thick as uh, the Bible, just huge um, (laughs) notes. He'd been excluded from multiple schools throughout the area and was, you know, sort of had problem child, problem adolescent written all over him. And there was a recent report because he was seeing a psychiatrist about his behaviour and how he wasn't cooperating with the treatment And after chatting to this guy, he was very shy and just didn't quite match the picture in the history and and the notes on on this young young guy of him throwing chairs around classrooms and, you know, getting quite violent, leading to school exclusions. I couldn't quite marry it up with the person that was in front of me. Um, And the more we chatted, the more I thought, I don't think, I think this young man might have some problems with language and I don't think he's really, um, I, I think there could be some undetected problems. Anyway, the long and short of it was that he did have some really significant receptive language problems. He was really very good at masking the challenges that he was um, experiencing, almost sort of textbook case in terms of some of the cases that you read about uh, young people with receptive language problems and he got to 15 without any formal assessment of his language ability or any question ever being raised about his language ability or whether he was understanding the contexts and the instructions and we got to a phase after a few sessions where you know he started to open up about why he threw chairs and he, he didn't know what he was being asked to do on quite a few occasions in some of those settings and his only way when he became uncertain because he got very embarrassed um, was um, he acted out. Understandably. Um, and I think he didn't understand what was happening in his sessions with the psychiatrist, which is why he was acting out um, yeah. in, in that session as well. And then the second, so I learned a lot from him and the fact that somebody could get to 15 Um, in the education system and it was the first time um, that I think questions about his language had ever been raised Um, and that was because not because I was a wonderful clinician it was simply because you know it became apparent from speaking to him anyone would have picked it up I think having spent time with him talking about it and then the second thing was you know going along to a case conference and trying to get across to 
um, you know, there must have been 15, 16 people talking about this young man's future and trying to get across to them that this young man actually had some um, significant problems making sense of his world and it was related to the fact that he had some very specific receptive language problems um, and his expressive language was affected as well. But And it was it was remarkable to me that he had managed to get where he got and managed this problem and disguised it for such a long time. Um, so I, I just learned so much from that, the interactions that I had uh, with that young guy. Mm. It's really fascinating to see, A, the resilience of some of the young people to have, to have gone through those primary years um, and really gone unnoticed, uh, but then to really not understand that language is an area of difficulty or for that to be recognised by people in and around them, uh, that it's something that could be assessed and something that, that could be supported uh, right through until I've got 15, 16, 17 year olds who have previously not even been flagged for learning support, but are really starting to come um, unstuck in senior secondary and on assessment alone are really fitting quite clearly. It's really quite clear that they have a developmental language disorder impacting their ability to learn. So mm -hmm. I think that we can learn a lot from um, not just the, the little ones that come through in our clinical experience, but as you said, the the young people, the adolescents and even young adults who can share their experiences and, and help us grow and support those um, others that we work with. Well, I think um, I'm conscious of the time um, and it's been a fabulous opportunity. So I'm going to stop here and say thank you very much for giving up your time to speak with me on the Talking DLD podcast. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners will absolutely love what you've had to share. It's incredibly, um, uh, incredibly useful to hear, uh, I guess, where we've come from, but also look towards the future as to where we can possibly go with supporting young people with DLD. So thank you. Thank you, Sean, and good luck with the podcasts. Thanks so much to Sean and Professor Riley for that super insightful conversation around the history of DLD terminology and the future of DLD. It certainly highlights how much we still need to do to raise awareness of DLD and increase support for families moving forward. In our next episode of the Talking DLD podcast, Sean speaks with Emily, a speech pathologist with 20 years experience who is currently undertaking her PhD at Edith Cowan University in WA, looking into diagnosis of DLD in children who speak more than one language. So don't miss episode three, it's gonna be great. Uh, to learn more about DLD and bilingual kids. In the meantime, keep up to date on all things DLD on our social media by liking or following The DLD Project on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, please feel free to share this podcast with everyone you know. Together we can create a world where people with DLD are recognised, understood and empowered to live their best life.